We can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we're just going to make a little headway today in this book. I want to say congratulations to Trent and my grandson Mason for finishing their first year of college. Three more plus to go, but uh, we've been praying for these guys, and we're thankful that the Lord at least brought them this far, so pray that they'll continue, and they'll have a good, restful summer. Pray for Mason and I. We're driving after church up to Idaho. It's about a 10-hour drive, so we should be there hopefully before midnight, so um, we'll work that out. <laughs> we appreciate your prayers concerning that. As we turn to God's Word this morning, um, this morning I, I kind of gave the message two titles. What does it mean to believe the Bible? And also, good news, sad news, bad news. Because we're going to look at all three, probably not all today, but we're at least going to get to the good news today. So hopefully you enjoy our time in God's Word. Let's stand in honor of God's Word, and we're just going to read first um, 13 through 16 of First Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes here, Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind, verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Father, we ask you bless this to our our hearts this morning as we read your word and uh, teach it and apply it to our lives. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start from the back of the Bible this, this morning. First, or I mean, Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. You can just turn there and I just want to read a couple of verses out of here because it kind of sets the, the foundation for what we're going to look at today. In Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. Apostle John writes, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Verse 9, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth. It will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. You might say, why are you reading that verse? What's that have to do with First Thessalonians? Well, the one thing that we understand Paul to be saying here in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, is he begins to thank God again for the work that God's word did in the lives and the, the hearts of the, the, the people at the church at Thessalonica. And so when you stop and you think about that, I think about the word of God in our own lives and even to boil it down further, the gospel message. When we hear the gospel message, sometimes when it's first revealed to us, it can be kind of bitter. For those that accept it, for those that come to Christ, for those that obey the gospel, it actually becomes very sweet. And since the very beginning when God revealed his revelation to mankind and through the plan of redemption through Christ himself, it's really a bittersweet reality. And some of you know that. I pray that most of you here today are believers, that you put your faith, your trust in Christ, so for you, when you hear the gospel, wow, you light up, you're like, yeah, amen. But for those of you who have rejected the gospel, those of you who have not obeyed the gospel and have not come to Christ, it may be a bitter message. And that's how the word of God works its way out in our lives sometimes. You find yourself contemplating 
the, the, the grandeur and the glory and all the blessings that come to those who come to Christ and accept his word and the message of the gospel and all that those awaits them. We, we read out of the end of the book of Revelation this morning for our devotions and worship. And it gave us a picture of heaven. And man, what a wonderful thing not to have need of anything anymore. We're going to be in the presence of God. We won't need a light to light up the darkness. We won't have sin. We won't have anything. What a glorious thing to look forward to. And for that, it's, it's just a wonderful blessing, the word of God. But by contrast to that, when you stop and think about it, those who reject the gospel, those who don't come to Christ, those who do not obey the gospel, what does it bring? It brings endless bitterness and shame and punishment and eternal damnation, really. That's what awaits those who do not come to Christ, those who reject the message of the gospel. And it's, it's so important to see that dynamic because in the church in Thessalonica, they had both those who accepted the message of the Apostle Paul and of God and those who rejected it. And we're going to be looking at the picture of those in the coming weeks. But there's never been such an, a, a contrast so apparent you come to Christ, wow, you're, you have eternal life, you have your sins forgiven, you have joy, everlasting and full of glory. But when you reject the message of the gospel, your life is filled with shame and punishment and all eternal sorrow forever. Pastor MacArthur said this in one of his messages on this text, and I'll just quote him, it's easier to quote him than try to redo it, so... It says, if we were to look in the Old Testament, we might identify Cain. In my own mind, I cannot imagine a greater illustration of wasted privilege, a greater illustration of lost opportunity than Cain. Cain had, he says, put it, to put it mildly, immense spiritual privilege. Some of you have been raised in Christian homes. Some of you have had the opportunity to hear the gospel. He goes on, he says, born to Adam, he thereby had a father who had known sinlessness and sinfulness. Think about that one. And who, unlike any other man who had ever lived thereafter, could explain to his son the benefits of sinlessness. Adam was a man who had intimate, he had personal communion with the living God as he walked and he talked with God in the cool of the day in the garden, the Bible says. Adam was a man who had unmitigated authority to be king of the earth with all the fullness of the blessing of God to support and sustain that. Adam was a man who lived in bliss. Adam was a man who knew perfect union and compatibility with a woman. Adam was a man who perfectly understood righteousness, who knew goodness in all of its wholeness. And Adam must have passed it on to Cain. Cain was privileged to have a father like no other father who ever existed. The lessons that Cain must have learned at the feet of Adam would be the profoundest lessons that a son could ever learn. Cain obviously was also instructed about the truth of God, about what pleased God, about God's will, about how to worship God, how to honor God, how to respond to God, how to treat God from one who knew very well. And yet Cain was an apostate. Cain rejected God. He rejected God's word. He rejected God's salvation. He spurned righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, Through he, though he obtained the testimony that he was righteousness, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. The Bible tells us that Cain chose to follow Satan, not God. 1 John 3, 12, it says, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, because his deeds were evil 
and his brothers were righteous. And he destroyed, he, he, was, he was destroyed eternally when you stop and think about it. In Jude 11 it says this, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. This has got to be the most tragic illustration of last opportunity, the, the bitterest of the bitter. So very close to the, the sweetness. He, I mean, he knew Adam as his father, and yet so far away. And when you come to the New Testament, we studied a character that fits the likeliness of, of Cain, Judas. You remember Judas? We did a series on leading up to Resurrection Sunday. I mean, think about it. Judas experienced only what 12 men in the entire world experienced. In the intimate relationship they had with Jesus Christ. Judas heard what Christ said. Judas saw what he did. He felt his attitudes and expressions. He watched his reactions. He could see the absolute and utter perfection of Christ's character in every way. Judas, in his mind, would have understood the truth that Jesus taught. He had the greatest opportunity ever offered to, ever, to any human being ever, but he what? He rejected God. He rejected Christ. He rejected the word of God. It tells us that he, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, ends up committing suicide only to spend all eternity in hell. Whether you're talking about Cain, whether you're talking about Judas, you're talking about a tragedy of massive proportions of the unlimited opportunity to know God that they were given. John MacArthur closes this quote. He says, The greater the opportunity, the greater the tragedy of rejection, and the greater the eternal punishment. When you think throughout, you know, all redemptive history, we have Cain's and we have Judas's, but we also have a group of people, God's chosen people, Israel. And the Jews have really exemplified that rejection It illustrates the ultimate tragedy of apostasy. If you turn over in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, and look at what Paul writes in verse 30. 930, he says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles did not pursue righteousness? Who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? That is the righteousness that is by faith, verse 31. But that Israel, or the Jewish nation, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? It tells us why they failed. Because they did not pursue it by what? Faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I share those examples with you just to say that the Thessalonians were on the other side of that pendulum. They didn't reject the gospel. They obeyed the gospel. They heard the message of Paul and Silas and Timothy when they came. And they really epitomized The reality that they believed God's truth and it transformed their life even though they had a small exposure to it. They didn't grow up in Christians' homes. They didn't hear the gospel every week. They came from, as many of you know, as we set up this book, it was pretty much a pagan society. It was a sailor's town. It It was filled with idols and idol worship and immorality. And yet, Paul and Timothy and Titus go there and they share the gospel. And it tells us in Acts chapter 17 that some believed. 
And this is a striking contrast to those who reject the gospel. He distinguishes sharply between those who come to Christ, those who obey the gospel, and those who do not. And the the Jews really, as a people, are, are a picture of what happens when you reject the truth. God gave them the word of God, the very word of God, to be a steward of it. And what did they do? He wanted them to spread that word, and they didn't. They, they held it near to their, their chest, thinking, wow, we are God's people. We're not going to give this up. You know, we're going we're gonna to do everything this word says, and we're going to work ourselves to death trying, because we're going to be righteous. They missed the whole message of the gospel. So we're going to begin in, beginning into some of the, the responses that the Jewish religious leaders had back here in this time. But today we just want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, because we want to look at some of the good news. And this centers around the conduct of the church and the people there in, in Thessalonica there that, that Paul had founded this church. And remember what we've been learning. Remember, Paul founded this church. A small group of believers got saved. And then they had to leave. Paul and Silas and Timothy got ran out of town. Run out of town. So they had to leave. And they left this small group of believers there. And after some months, Paul began to wonder, when, I wonder how they're doing. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you wonder if you led somebody to Christ and, and they came to Christ and, man, they started to grow and then you had to move and you were separated. You would probably stay in contact with him. How are you doing? Are you staying in the word? And Well, you know, back then they didn't have telephones. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have texts and all that. So, I mean, you'd actually have to send somebody there or they would send word to you or whatever. But usually it was weeks, if not months, before you would ever hear any update at all. And so Paul sent Timothy after some time back and said, hey, go check on these, this church. I'm just kind of worried about him because, you know, we did what we could while we were there. The word says that Paul was there three Sabbaths. He taught three Sabbaths. He was probably there longer than that. That's three weeks. He was probably there a couple months because he had a job and he worked. And people supported him there. So he probably had an extended time there with him, a couple months. But that's still, you know, it would be like starting a, a church here in Redwood City and staying here for a month or two and then saying, yeah, see you later. I'm leaving. You know, um, that wouldn't do too well. You know, you'd want to follow up. You'd want to have somebody on site to help these new believers. Well, they didn't have that privilege. And so they were really wondering what was going on. So Timothy came back, and this is the, the glowing report here that we have before us. But remember what we looked at the last couple of weeks, because people began to question Paul's motives. They began to question his model of ministry. They said, yeah, he's just like all these other teachers. They come, build your hopes up, and then they leave. And Paul had to point out to him that, no, you know, Uh, pressures are things that reveal the right motives. Problems undermine right motives. And we talked about priorities that reflect right motives in verses 7 to 9. And then we talked about the practices that demonstrate Paul's right motives and the purpose that controls right motives. Well, now we come to verse 13, where Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this. And so Paul is saying here, We also thank God. And you're saying, well, why is he saying we also thank God? Because he already got done thanking God for them. Do you remember? Back in the previous chapter. Paul and Silas had only ministered there for a short time. And so they were were very overwhelmed when they found all the good things that God was doing in their hearts. And he he even writes about it in in chapter 3, verse 5 about the church's progress, he says, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. He's talking about sending Timothy back. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So he was really unsure. He saw the work of God beginning there, but he wasn't able to really necessarily be there to see it continuing. And so he sends Timothy back and Timothy reports, hey, everything's good. These, these guys are doing really well. They're, they're strong in the Lord. And Paul now is thankful for what God has done in the hearts and lives of the Thessalonians. And if you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, 
Verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then he begins to tell them why. In verse 3, he says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. The conversion, the work that God did in their hearts to save them. He was thankful for that. He saw that immediately. And then he says the labor of love. Talking about their, their, their service. And then the steadfastness of hope. That enduring hope they had. Even though they were coming under some of the same persecution that Paul was. See, that, that really ref, it kind of takes the, the cover off our, our faith and, and helps us identify whether it's genuine or not. When we're struggling. You know, there's so many people in the Christian faith today that think that it's just this message of happiness in Jesus. You know, you go to, go to church once a week and punch the card and, and everybody's happy. Um, but the reality is not that at all. Most of us in this room struggle weekly, if not daily, with our lives. We struggle with the fact that, well, are we being honoring to the Lord with this or that or whatever it might be? And it's an ongoing struggle that started when? When we came to Christ. Because it's only when we know Christ that we know how to do what's right before God's eyes. Before that, we think we know, right? And we're trying to work our way into God's righteousness. But then when God takes the blinders off, we realize, wow, this isn't, this isn't possible. Nobody can be good enough to please God. And so we give up our our kind of our, our laborious faith, trying to earn God's favor, and we trade it for Christ's righteousness at the cross. And we, we surrender, basically. We say, Lord, I give up. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired of trying to be this religious person that's trying to do all the things right and, and only coming up short every day. It's like the Apostle Paul that says, I know the things I shouldn't be doing, but I don't do them, and the things I know I shouldn't be doing, that's what I do. That's a struggle that's with us, beloved, until Christ returns. That's never going to leave. So don't believe the health, the wealth, the prosperity, gospel teachers that say, oh, God doesn't want you suffering, God doesn't want this, God doesn't want that. No, we are saved to suffer here on this earth and to struggle. And the reason is it's because it keeps us dependent on Christ. You know, I don't know about you, but when I'm doing pretty good on my own, you know, I, I don't pray as much. I don't need to. You know, you kind of almost become self-sufficient. But boy, when that, that trial thing or the doctor report or whatever, then oh, man, all of a sudden you're on your knees, you know, a lot more. Why? Because you, all of a sudden you need God because you've been faced with something you cannot fix. And see, what happens with people who are coming to Christ, there finally comes a day when they're faced with the very fact that, you know what, I can't fix this. I can't do anything to change my heart. The Bible says my heart is wicked. It's, it's beyond wicked. There's nothing I can do. I can go to church seven days a week. That's not going to change my standing before God. I can get baptized as many times as I want. I can take communion as many times as I want. I can pray long prayers, whatever. None of that is going to change your heart before a holy God. And that's why God sent Christ Right? He died on the cross. The perfect lamb of God, the, the one who knew no sin whatsoever, went to the cross and said, if you'll believe in my sacrifice for you, I will give you my righteousness and I will take all of your sin upon me, even though I never sinned once. I'll own your sin. The Bible says that he'll even become sin for us. And so Paul is seeing this fleshed out in the Thessalonians' lives. And so he says, we give thanks for you in verse 2 of chapter 1. Always for you. He didn't thank the Thessalonians. Why? Because he knew they couldn't do this work. It wasn't their work to be done. It was God's work. He says there in verse 6, he says, but now, verse, chapter, he says, but now that Timothy has come to you from us, and has brought us good news about your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us as we long to see you. So he had this positive report from Timothy now. And he begins 
here in chapter 2, verse 13, he just can't help himself but to once again be thankful. He was always thankful for the privilege of being in ministry, for the ability to see that, you know what, God can use him and God can affect change in the hearts and lives of people. It wasn't the Apostle Paul that did this, it was God. And so he rehearses the reason that he was constantly thankful to God for the Thessalonians. We also thank God constantly for this. Well, one of the five reasons that he was thankful, just quickly there, it's, he says it's a reason, but it's really five. They received the gospel message. Look at what it says in verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, but they also accepted it. It says you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And then you look a little further down in verse 13, and he talks about what the word of God performed that work in them. That this was a real deal. This wasn't some, you know, faulty conversion. This was something that affected change in the Thessalonians. But then, in verse 14, it even goes down further, and and Paul says, you know what, I'm even thankful that, that you begin to imitate others who were in the faith. In verse 14 there, he says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So he's saying, boy, this is kind of following the plan. This is, I've seen this happen before in churches. I found it other churches, and boy, maybe they struggled at first, but then they really got on fire for the Lord. And, and even though they were being persecuted and all these things were happening to them, we know that they accepted and received the word of God because it performed a work in their heart, and they began to emulate other Christians. It's not a herd mentality. It's not like, you know, we believe in this church, we all have to act like robots and and imitate everybody else. That's not the point. The point is we're to imitate who? Christ. And as Christians, or little Christ, we are to be like Christ. And that's why God continues to work in us and, and mold us and shape us. Why? To make us in our own image? No, to make us in the image of who? Christ. So when people see us, they see the the characteristics and the nuances of Jesus Christ. That word imitate there is the word mimic. You know, when somebody mimics somebody, they copy them. They're trying to pretend they're like them. But this was genuine. And then the fifth thing that Paul was very blessed with and thankful for in verse 14 at the end there, and we'll be getting into all this in the coming weeks, he says, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So the other churches that were founded there obviously had an issue with the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders, and we're going to spend some time in the coming weeks when we talk about this phrase, the Jews, because unfortunately in our culture and throughout history, people have read this text of Scripture and kind of blamed the Jews for all this stuff. And it really caused a lot of Tension, you might see, say, racial tension, other things in our society. And there's some interesting reasons why this happened, even in the church. Because when you get down to the end there of verse 14, it talks about, for you suffered the same things from your countrymen as they did from the Jews. And then look at what verse 15 says. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Well, people take that and they say, yeah, all Jews are bad. (laughs) Therefore, the church has replaced Israel. The Jews aren't important anymore. Now it's the church. That's an error from the pit of hell. That's a lie. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Israel is still God's chosen people. And one day they will be redeemed. Right now, they're kind of in a holding pattern. You know, there are Jews that still come to Christ We call them Messianic Jews. They still come to Christ. Even today, it's far and few between, but they do. And so, 
Paul says, for these, for these five reasons, they received the word of God, the message, they accepted the word of God, they, it performed their work in them, they imitated other believers, and they endured under persecution. He is thankful. So what does it mean then to believe the Bible? Because it's the Bible, it's the word of God that's doing this work in their hearts. It's not Paul. So many times in the church when we get someone saved and we start to disciple them or mentor them, all of a sudden the allegiance of that person turns to who? The person who's discipling them or mentoring them. Because they think of this person as some spiritual giant. And all of a sudden it's bordering on the the edges of worship like the church of Corinth had. Remember what Paul had to say. Some are saying we're of Apollos, right? We're of, see, we're of this person, we're of that. Some of us are even of Jesus. They were, they were claiming certain names and as they followed. No, we're only called to follow Christ. If someone disciples you and someone mentors you and their whole motivation is to make you look at them, we got a problem because that's not what we're called to do. Paul says, hopefully when you look at me, you will see Christ, because I'm looking at Christ. And so it's always Christ that should be lifted up. But all this happens, this transformative message of the gospel and everything that was brought to the Thessalonians was all based on the word of God. It wasn't based on Paul's testimony. It wasn't based on you know, their, their ideas and their religious upbringing. It was based on the word of God and how powerful it was in their lives and how it affected change. And that's why as a church we make it a very important point that you know what when we gather together for worship as believers we always want there to be a teaching from the word of God. Because we know that when we teach from the word of God that's the only thing that's going to affect change in your life of eternal value. I mean we could have seminars on how to balance your checkbook or how to have a better marriage. Not that those things are bad. But the main goal on Sunday morning for the New Testament church was to what? Edify the saints. It wasn't even to lead people to Christ. It wasn't wasn't discipleship in in the form, or it wasn't evangelism in the form of, oh, you know what, on Sunday morning they gathered on the first day of the week just so they could preach the gospel to the masses and see them come to Christ. No. Now, is that part of our Christian lives? Evangelism, yes. But is the goal on Sunday morning to evangelize the lost here? Well, indirectly, yes. We want them to hear God's truth. But we don't want to dumb everything down just so a non-believer can sit here and say, wow, this is a fun place to be. I'm entertained. I like the music. I like the food. I'm I'm coming back. Because if that's all that happens, it's all for naught. Because they're still on their way to hell for all eternity. And so we need to understand our role as a church And so when we come together, we always want to be focused on the Word of God. So what does it mean to believe the Bible? I found some interesting quotes from some of our leaders in our country. Abraham Lincoln. Um, Abraham Lincoln had a devout, from what I understand, Christian parents, but apparently he didn't become a believer until the darkest days of the Civil War. As a boy... History says that he read the Bible so much that his style was after heavily was often heavily influenced by the old King James version of the of the text. And there's a quotation here I'll read from Abraham Lincoln, no doubt, from the period before he found his faith. He says, I am profitably engaged in reading the Bible. Take all of this book upon reason that you can and the balance of faith and you will live and die a better man. Ulysses S. Grant said this. He was a man of integrity. He was dying of cancer and he wrote his memoirs not for prestige but to kind of leave his family a little bit of something that would help them with the family debt. And he finished it in times and and the royalties they say from his book His memoirs really saved the family from financial ruin. But he wrote this. He said, hold fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts on your hearts and practice them in your lives. To the influence of this book, we are indebted 
for the progress made. And to this, we must look as our guide in the future. These men had an extreme, profound faith in the Word of God. Or William McKinley, many say he was a genuine believer in Christ. His words are solely really needed in our our, our Christian-based bashing culture today. But he said this, The more profoundly we study this book and the more closely we observe its divine precepts, the better citizens we will become and the higher will be our destiny as a nation. Why did they say that? Because they believe the word of God to be the word of God. Well, what does it mean to believe the Bible? Believing the Bible there in your outline, first of all, means accepting its authority in every area of life. And this is what the Thessalonians did. When they brought the word of God to them, it says, first of all, they what? They received it, Paul says. They received it. He was thankful that they were receptacles of the word of God. Not just his words, but the word of God. They were open to listening and and hearing preaching from Paul and Silas and Timothy. In Acts chapter 17, verse 4, it says, And some of them were persuaded, and they even joined Paul and Silas and Timothy, as did many of the devout Greeks and a few of the leading women in the area. But as I said, there's always the other side of when the gospel is presented. Here they accepted it, but if you go back in Acts chapter 28, verse 24, it says this, and some were convinced by what he said, but others, what, disbelieved. (laughs) You always have that dynamic when you present the gospel. Some will believe, some won't. Well, this word here, received, it refers to an objective reception of a particular message. In other words, you just kind of look at it, in this case, it's talking about the Bible. You're just saying, okay, this is the, the word of God. And I, and I want to I receive it. When it says they're the word of God which you heard from us, see it there in the text? It really means a word heard from us out from God. A word heard out from us from God. That's what Paul, Timothy, and Silas were. They were what? They were just, they were kind of, receptacles that the word of God moved through and fell upon the eager ears of these in Thessalonica. And so the word of God which you heard from us, these missionaries spoke the words, but those words came from God. That's why it's important, beloved, when you have your testimony, when you have an opportunity to share your testimony or witness to someone, it's always vitally important to include the word of God. You don't have to even have to have the, you know, the, the address you know, Acts 28, 24. You don't even have to have that. But just say, you know what? The word of God says this. And, and, and tell them the word of God. Because it's the word of God that has the power to transform the heart. I remember on the night I was saved, the pastor, the poor pastor, I mean, hours with me over dinner. And my family had already left the dinner table. I didn't even know. They were in the other room praying for me. And he was stuck in like Romans three twenty three. Just for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And I just, it just didn't, it wasn't computing with me. I mean, I understood what it said. I wasn't illiterate. But he just kept on going over and over. And I'm so thankful that he persisted. I don't know if I would have persisted as long as he did, to be honest. I mean, I probably would have said, okay, well, you know, I'll, let's just go home. I'll be praying for you. See you later. But he continued. He just persisted in that. And all of a sudden, it was just like God somehow lifted the fog. And I thought, wow, for all have sinned. All, that includes me. And for the first time, I saw my sinfulness, not in comparison to my family members, but in comparison to a holy God. And I I needed salvation. I knew. I understood the gospel. But it was something that God used that, that verse in my life in such a way because it was the word of God. And that's what he says here. He says it's the word of God. It's, it's infinitely superior to human words. You know, when you're, when you're witnessing to somebody, don't fall into the devil's trap of trying to make up words to share with these people that don't know Christ. Share the word of God. That's why it's important to hide the word of God in your heart, right? To memorize it so it's there on a moment's notice when God can recall it. But see, here they were used to 
superior human words. Greek philosophy and all kinds of things that were going on. That's what they were accustomed to hearing. But that's not what Paul shared with them. He didn't share that with them at all. He shared the word of God. And they had all kinds of philosophers and religious teachers in their community. And so they were probably used to even preachers, people coming and setting up shop in the streets and trying to take advantage of them. But when Paul spoke the word of God, divinely empowered by his, the Holy Spirit, what happened? I mean, it, it affected change in their lives. Because they received it. But they also accepted it as the word of God, not just human word. They accepted it as the true message of salvation from God. That's what coming to Christ, that's what being saved is, right? I mean, when you hear the gospel message and you say, yes, I believe this is true. I believe this word of God is true. This Bible is true. So if this Bible says such and such, I, I need to believe it. I need to accept it. I don't need to argue with it. That word accepted there talks about an inward welcome of the message. You know, they received it objectively. But here we're talking more of an a, a, uh, uh, inward welcoming of this message. It has the idea of a transference from the mind to the heart. You know, when you finally get something, and it, it just resonates with you, and you realize, wow, that's what that that means. I remember when I was in high school, I wasn't a really good student, but I remember I had to take algebra. And I, had to, I wanted to take it in the summer because it was a smaller class and um, the football coach taught it and stuff. So I thought, ah, okay, we'll see how this works. And he was a fun guy. So I remember sitting in class with him and he's trying to, you know, A plus B equals, and I'm like, I just could not get the concept of algebra. You know, like, why are there letters? This isn't math class. Why, you know, I mean, why are you putting letters in a math class? It didn't make any sense to me. And I remember him trying to explain it to me. It's a formula, and here's what formula, and it just, I could not comprehend it. I mean, for days, this guy just would go nuts in class. What do I got to do with you, conversion? Can't you understand, you know? And he'd go through the formulas, and A's just representing this number that's, we don't know what it is, and we're trying to get you, and I thought, why did you put the number in there? I just couldn't get it. You know, it was just so weird. I mean, you might think it's stupid. I was kind of stupid in that area. But eventually, it was like one day I remember like, oh, now I get it. And then it made perfect sense. But it was such a hard thing. And that's kind of what we do, right? We struggle with the gospel when we first get it. We, 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 we may even accept it as the word of God, or we may receive it as the word of God. But then there comes that time of accepting it. And, and it kind of comes from your head, and it, all of a sudden it goes down to your heart, and you realize, this is true. And if this is true, why wouldn't I believe? Why wouldn't I commit myself to Christ? And that's really what Romans 10.10 says, right? For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one what? Confesses, it says, and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, that's not an easy believism verse. That's not making the, the act of salvation, oh, you know, you can do this in your sleep, it's not a big deal. No, it's always a big deal. Because even though it says, with the heart one believes and is justified, I mean, that's, that's a lot in those couple words there. With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You know, just because this... And Ken was saying earlier, just because you believe something, that, I mean, I'm sure most people here believe that there's a God. Well, you know what? That, that message isn't going to save you. Most people here maybe believe that God is the creator. Well, guess what? That message isn't going to save you. You could believe that Jesus lived and died and, and died on a cross and was buried, and on the third day he rose again. Just believing that. There's a lot of people who believe that, but they're not saved. What has to happen? It has to make its way from our head to the heart, and all of a sudden, when it makes our way to the heart, then we really believe it. 
right? We really understand it. Why? Because it's affecting change. God is doing a work in our own heart. So then what happens? Then we want to confess. We want to tell others, right? It's kind of evidence of that salvation. And he says, when you do that, you're not going to be put to shame. Now, you may be mocked in this world for your, your faith. That's true. But you know what? Ultimately, we're going to be on the winning side of this deal. In Romans 10, 17, it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of the pastor. Oh, no. Through the word of the Sunday school teacher. Oh, no, it doesn't say that either. You know, it, it says what? Through the word of Christ. Through the word of Christ. That's where the power is. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so Paul really is accentuating here that the Thessalonians really affirmed and they, they understood this message and they didn't accept it as Paul's word. They accepted it as the word of God. They knew that it was from God. Um, in, in Corinth, Paul wrote this to the, 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 the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you also stand, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is all the message of God. These aren't Paul's words. He tells the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It's not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Paul wasn't interested in sharing his message. He was only interested in sharing what? The message of Christ, the message of God. And so here in Thessalonians, we see, verse 4, verse 15, other places, um, it, it tells us that the Thessalonians really heard the word of God. And that's what affects change in people's hearts and lives. Unlike the word of men, the word of God is not empty. It's not inept. It's not inert. It's not powerless. The verb here, rendered, performs its work there means to work effectively in somebody's life. To work efficiently. To work in a productive, a productive manner. Even on a, on a supernatural level. Like when you look at someone who, who has really had the work of God done and wrought in their heart, it's not like you look at them and go, hmm, I wonder if God's doing something there. We don't know yet. We'll have to wait and see. No. You look at their life and you go, wow, what an incredible change. A change in every way, a change in their thinking, a change in their, their actions, a change in their words, a change in who they hang out with and what they do. Everything about them is changed. It doesn't mean they're weird either. You know, I mean, just because you become a Christian, you don't have to be a weirdo. I, I just wish, you know, most Christians would understand that fact. Because frankly, there's some Christians that are just, they're just weirdos. You know, they have the standard they paint for unbelievers, which they can never attain. And so if they're around unbelievers, usually it's not comfortable for anybody because they can't relate to unbelievers because they think somehow they walk on a plane above everybody else. They're very self-righteous and they look down their noses at everybody and within the church. And then when you get to people without the church, uh, you know, all they have for them is, you know what, turn or burn. That's it. That's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message that Paul employed. He, he used the word of God. It's not empty. It's powerful. And it works effectively and efficiently and, and produces a work in our lives on a supernatural level to the degree that people look back. You can look at your own life and go, wow, I don't know what happened, but something happened. It's kind of like the guy that, you know, he, he regained his sight, remember, and, and Jesus healed him. And the religious leaders go, well, what happened? You know, and he's I don't know. I can't tell you. Do you want to become a Christian too? I mean, he's, he's really appealing to their, their senses there. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11 says this, because the one thing we know for sure is that God's word always performs his purposes in the lives of those who believe it. It always does. And Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word 
be that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me, what? Empty or void, some of our translations say. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, Scripture works on our behalf and in our lives in a multitude of ways. It saves us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. In other words, this didn't happen by natural means. It wasn't something you did. He says, through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails or falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is what Paul wanted them to understand. The word of God saved them. It sanctified them. John 17, 17, it matures them. 1 Peter 2, 2, it frees them. John 8, 31 and 32, it perfects them. It counsels them. It builds them up. I mean, it it does so much for us. So why would we not believe the word of God? Why would we not allow it to affect change in our hearts? But to do that, we first have to receive it. We have to accept it. And when we do, God will begin that work in our lives, just like he did in the church in Thessalonica. And when he does that, there's no turning back. There's no turning back. There's no, there's no, it's not a hit and miss kind of a thing. That's why we believed in the perseverance of the saints. We believe if you're saved, you will persevere. You will be true to the Lord to the end, no matter what the circumstances might be. Because God gives us that guarantee. It's not that we have that ability within ourselves. We don't. But God allows us to have that assurance through what? Through his word, through what he tells us. So we'll continue this next week, but let's bow in a word of prayer and and just ask the Lord to apply these things to our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for our own copy of of, of your word, the Bible. Lord, that we can have our own personal copy and take it with us and knowing that it has the power to affect change not just in our lives, but in the lives of the people we come across. And Father, for us Christians, as we're out sharing our faith, Lord, I pray that we would focus on the Word of God, that we would share meaningful verses from your text of Scripture to unbelievers' hearts, that we would see it affect change in their lives. Lord, that you would give them the grace to turn from their own devices and trying to work out their own salvation and and turn to you willingly and embrace the Savior. And Father, that that would happen through the Word of God. And Lord, if there's any here this morning who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Father, I pray that they would understand just believing in God is not good enough, coming to church isn't good enough, being baptized isn't good enough. You, you, Jesus said that you have to give up everything, 100%, to follow Christ. And when you do, that step of faith, when you believe and you, you're willing to obey the gospel, when you turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior and you throw yourself on his mercy, at his feet, and ask for his grace to intervene in your life and to save you. He will. And I just pray that you would affect that change in hearts here this morning. Lord, we pray for our upcoming week as we have opportunities to share your word with others. pray that we would do so effectively and efficiently, knowing that it's, it's through the power of the gospel that people will come to know you, not through our rhetoric, not through our pamphlets or tracts, but through your word. And so, Father, we thank you. We pray. Bless our time, uh, fellowship across the way as well. And uh, just uh, let us lift our voices up to you now as we sing one last song. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.